electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. Happy Monday. I am Brian Sullivan, and here's what's coming up. Two big stories today and a big show. Rates and the markets. And with us for the entire hour is the perfect person to talk about it. Literally, the biggest name in bonds. Guggenheim, Scott Minard, will talk about his famous prediction a couple of weeks ago for a 20% drop. Whether the Fed will go for a full one percentage point hike on Wednesday We'll be less this time, more down the road, and why you really need to care. It's a big deal. And as always, in good times and bad times, there is always opportunity somewhere. We're going to try to help you find some as well. We've got all that ahead. But let us get started with today's market numbers. And for that, of course, Mr. Dom Chu, I said giant numbers on your screen behind you, Dom. How are you managing Red and this? green. Oh, my. Red like and Christmas. green today. It is it's like Christmas. a Burl Ives market. Every day is like Christmas. Maybe not, maybe not as good as Burl Ives are at Christmas time. But still, it is a day right now where the markets are higher. But it has been an interesting move with regard to the timing of when it's happened. We've seen both sides of that kind of unchanged line. We're three points to the upside for the S&P right now. 38.76, the last trade there. At the highs of the session, we were up 13 handles, so just about tilting towards the higher end. On the lows, down 35 points, so a pretty decent decline. The Dow Industrial's up 45 points right now, one-tenth of one percent. The Nasdaq Composite, 11,456 of eight points, just about flat. But again, the trading range has been relatively muted. It's about the general trading range that we saw on Friday's session during that down day. Now, the rates part that Brian mentioned, a very big part of that story. Earlier this morning, we saw rates spike in a pretty decent way to the highest levels of the cycle. It's about 11-year highs for the 10-year benchmark Treasury note. Got above 3.5%, right now 3.47%. But again, the highest level is at one point going all the way back to 2011. Now, this kind of general trend higher has taken its toll on many growth-oriented stocks, technology and media to be specific in particular. Those mega cap names really kind of driving a lot of the downside. So watch that rate picture. And then some of the individual movers have caught a lot of people's eyes. Healthcare is a big laggard today. One of the reasons why is because many of the mega cap names and even small to mid caps names that deal very much with COVID-19 vaccines and treatments have taken a big hit. Moderna is down 9%. BioNTech, the partner of Pfizer on their COVID vaccine, is down 8%. 8% declines for Novavax. Pfizer and Merck, the mega cap side of things, also down 1.5% to 2%. This after President Biden during his 60 Minutes interview last night on CBS, said that, you know what, the COVID pandemic is over. And that kind of took a lot of things down. Some traders attributing that weakness in vaccine makers to some of those comments, Brian. So we'll keep an eye on those. That's the reason why they're down. We'll send things back over to you. Oh, yeah. Big comments on 60 Minutes last night. The pandemic is over. Great to hear. Dom, thank you very much. All right. So outside of that, it is a huge week for your money with the Fed decision on interest rates just two days away. You may have heard something about that on this network. (laughs) And we have Guggenheim Scott Minard right here on set in the building to discuss what's at stake for your money in the economy as the Fed gets ready to make a move. And you're going to be co-piloting all hour. It's great to see you in person, my man. Not in Beverly Hills. Well, this is an exception. This is great. I, you know, I've heard I'm the first person to ever come in. Well, in a couple of years. I mean, well, the halftime. And, but, but yeah. you know, you're well, on the exchange. You. We're, we're happy to have you. Well, thank you. And I'm just filling in for Kelly anyway. So let's do this. Um, you heard about this Fed meeting. Uh, when? 
Yeah, it's on yeah. Wednesday, <laughs> 2 o'clock Eastern time, by the way. We'll get the decision. I mean, I got to ask you the most basic question. I'm sorry to even right. do it. Three-fourths of a percent or one percent? Oh, well. Or more. Yeah. The, the, they're not going for more. Three, I think three-quarters of a percent, I think, is the most likely outcome. Um, I heard somebody the other day make a comment about 50, and I'm like, there is no way you're doing 50 because of the, where we're pricing Fed funds futures. But on the other hand, you know, we can't rule out a, a full 1% increase. So, you know, I, I think 1% would be better than three-quarters of a percent because there, there's more hiking to come, and they might as well just get it behind them. And well, that's it. You know, it feels like, And you talked about this at the Milken Conference with us on camera. We did some events, which is it's like the Fed's going 100 miles an hour in a car on a wet road, and there's a wreck up ahead. They've got to slow down. Right. But it feels like they're trying to slow down sort of all at once, but too slow at the same time. Right. How does this end? Well, well look, this, this is going to end in tears. Right. For who? For investors. Us on this show? Yeah, well, people that are long risk assets. Um, the, the Hasn't re- it already? I mean, this year has been awful. Oh, well, it can get a lot worse. I mean, you know, I, I commented a couple of weeks ago that I thought we had another 20% of the downside in stocks by October. But... Um, you know, Brian, when you look at the stuff that policymakers should look at, the money supply is contracting. We have, um, we have inflation that we're looking at in the rearview mirror. We're not looking at inflation going forward. There's a very good chance that in the attempt to prove their credibility that they're going to overdo it. And I think at some point here, as I said back in, in April, uh, you know, they're going to push it until something breaks. And I think the, the, the break will probably come through uh, you know, equity prices, but could come in another place. It could come in the emerging markets. So you know, eventually this will end in tears. And one thing, you know, with people that are talking about a stock market bottom, I would just point out one thing, and that is we have never had a bottom in a stock market without the Fed, uh, while the Fed is still raising rates. Never. Never. Never had a bottom in the market while the Fed is still raising rates. That's right. So, so the question is, how much longer do they raise? I mean, is it, is it now in November and that's it? Well, uh, my personal Then you could make the case for the market bottoming in December and then kicking off and something in next sure. year. Well, look, I think, the, I think the, the latter part of the fourth quarter could be very, a very good time to get in. Um, I think the fact equities into equities. I think that uh, my view was that we're going to go three quarters at this meeting, a half a point at the next meeting and a quarter at the December meeting. Uh, and that would be the end of it. Uh, but again, the Fed isn't necessarily thinking of this the same way I am. And they're certainly not focused on the money supply numbers. The, the money supply so, numbers are really disturbing. You, you, I know. Listen, don't be my. You talk to the Fed. I know you talk to Federal Reserve officials, both retired and current, and we get that. So there's your view. Maybe we get a little frosting, a quarter point in December, and you were on the record as saying that could be a good time to get into stocks. I want to unpack what you just said about the money supply. We get a little interest rate obsessive here on CNBC. I get that. Right. We need to talk more about money supply, M2, M6, because if I overlaid a chart of money supply versus the equity markets, they look like twins. That's right. It's a high correlation. So if one's going down, right. maybe that's why we're down 15 20% on the S&P this year. Exactly. And, I, and it's going to continue to go down. Shrinking the balance sheet, raising rates, all of these things are only done by decreasing the, the supply of money. 
Money is like any other commodity. If there's more of it, it's cheaper. If there's less of it, it becomes more expensive. And so, um, you know, the piece I wrote back in, I believe it was in January or February, which was, you know, stop worrying about interest rates and, you know, shrink the balance sheet and let the market find its equilibrium level. I think the Fed is pushing hard on the market at the same time it's shrinking the balance sheet. And we went through this before. I mean, it's amazing how uh, short people's memories are. In the fourth quarter of 2018, the Fed was raising rates and shrinking the balance sheet. And at the December meeting, uh, the chair Powell made the famous comment that, um, you know, the balance sheet reduction was on autopilot. Mm. If anybody who was in the market remembers, we went down by 20%. And the next day, the Fed was in the market pivoting and saying that uh, the balance sheet mattered and the Fed reversed course in the first quarter. But here's the thing about you, okay, because I, I posted this on Twitter, so people are saying, oh, the biggest bear in the world is coming on. You're a big guy, so you may be the biggest bear. You make these big calls, though. Bitcoin down 50%, which, by the way, it did. Right. It fell 50%. You're not going to be right 100% of the time. Right. Why come out with the down 20%? <coughs> why, why? Yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> well, I mean, you obviously believe it. You're not yeah, saying, sure. you're not trying, you don't need Twitter followers. You don't need the headlines. No, and I, you get the, you, look, you, you How much you guys you overseeing the now? 300 something? 300, 300 billion. Yeah, so you're not looking for more money. No, well, it would be I nice. mean, always, but yeah. Yes, but yeah. No. Why make that call? You know, the scar, well, you know, it's interesting because the, our clients and investors out there, you know, they get upset with me when I don't communicate to them. And so I try to find a happy middle ground where, you know, I write commentaries, but also where, you know, when I when I become aware of something and I don't have time to write a commentary, you know, I can get the word out quickly and, and I have a lot of Twitter followers. If you say stocks crashing 20% is a, quote, happy middle ground, I'm not sure I want to come to a party with you. <laughs> okay? Well... You know, I, was I, there a worse ground? Uh, well, you know, I often tell people, don't ever, don't ever hire an optimistic money manager. And I got a comment the other day. Somebody said to me, boy, Scott, nobody's ever going to question, you know, all the great, you know, all the great investments you've made. And I looked at them and I said, you know, to be honest with you, most of our returns doesn't come from all the fantastic investments we've made. It's been avoiding, avoiding the disasters. So we avoided the, you remember the financial crisis. You know, we avoided uh, the drawdown that occurred in the pandemic. And, you know, that there's a time to, you know, to take some money off the table. I was very, very bullish in March of 2020. Um, but, you know, right now, you know, I would say. Money's been made. Yeah. Maybe we, those were, those were some good years, right? after. I mean, if you bought near the bottoms, obviously, it was, it was from a market perspective. We had this boom off the bottom, and then we gained a little bit more. I mean, do you feel like we just kind of pulled forward future gains? Exactly. And, and actually, I think we're giving some of it back. I mean, the real question... Well, we have to with multiples, right? In, higher rates mean you've got to bring down multiples. Right. And, and that was part of the reason I put out the tweet I did, that, that our, the multiple of the S&P relative to historical multiples associated with these kinds of interest rates is, is way too high. And that's where the, the idea of a 20% correction comes from. But, you know, the, the, the other argument here is that earnings are going to improve. And I don't see where that's coming from. You know, look at FedEx last week. That was week. a one-off, though. I mean, UPS didn't yeah. warn DHL. Right. 
No, but I'm just saying, you know, there are more and more negative surprises coming out. It's not just FedEx. And, you know, the, the energy, you know, when you look at the growth in earnings that we got and how earnings have held up, most of it has come out of energy. That's right. And now we're going to give it back. So the least, the least meaningful part of the S&P, 4.5% of the S&P 500 contributing an outsized, that's maybe one reason why a guy you know has been talking about energy for a couple of years. And I, what, what I worry about, Scott, is you look at, there is a huge percentage of a big cap revenue of American companies that comes from Europe. Right. Europe's in big trouble. In really big trouble. And so is part of the thesis that EPS has to come down because global earnings, China's a disaster, shutting their economy down, <coughs> Europe's got their own problems. You know what I mean? You want some water? Um, I haven't, thank you. Okay, good. But one thing that helped us with European earnings so far is the depreciation of the dollar. In the translation coming back, you know, we're, or, sorry, the appreciation of the dollar. Yeah. So, I mean, eventually this is going to catch up and, and this is all going to is going to... So how much more could we see earnings estimates come down? Because strategists on Wall Street, and we, they, they come on this show, they come on this network, we like them and we appreciate them, they do make changes right. mid-year, yep. all the time. Many right. have brought down their S&P 500 estimates already. Right. You expect then, if I'm hearing you right, right, some of these earnings estimates that are the basis for the multiple numbers and basis for the price targets. Those have to come down. Yeah, and I think, you know, look, 5% would be easy. 10% not to be unexpected. I mean, I would be surprised if it would be 20%, but you know, the, the nature of the severity of the downturn in Europe is, is really bad. And despite what policymakers are saying over there, I think next year will be a really tough year for Europe economically. It is, and they've got storage, which is great, but now they've got to exist just on storage and you're gonna see industries that have to slow down or shut down. We have got a lot more to do. You're going to be sort of co-piloting the whole hour with us. We're going to get you back in a few minutes, talk more about this idea, talk about some things you like, because everyone's like, he's such a bear. I mean, you do, you, there are things that are not terrible. Exactly. You won't say you love them, but they're not terrible. Yeah, there, there's, I, That's it. And I thought, I think uh, there's a, uh, a once-in-a-generation opportunity right now. We're gonna, that's a great tease. You should be in TV. Uh, I am. Once it, that's, <laughs> hold, don't say what it is. Once in a generation opportunity right now for the biggest bear on Wall Street. Scott, stick around, get some water, we'll be back. All right, coming up, we are 48 hours away from the Fed's decision on rates. You may have heard that, and the question isn't whether they're gonna raise, but like we just talked about with Scott, how much. We get the full, first full point, i.e. 100 basis point rate hike since the Paul Volcker era. J.P. Morgan's top economist, Mike Faroli, will join us next with the 10-year yield at its highest in 11 years plus. Two parts of the market most impacted by rates, housing and tech. We'll look at the fallout for each sector and get Scott Miner's biggest takeaways on that. The exchange, a lot to do. We're back right after this. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. 
Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. The hotter-than-expected CPI, the inflation data for August, erasing most hopes that the Fed is going to slow down the pace of rate hikes for the rest of the year. J.P. Morgan raising its Fed funds rate forecast by another 50 basis points, half percent, due to sustained pressure on tightening. Now expects 75 basis points on Wednesday, followed by 50 in November, 25 in December, and then another 25 in January. Joining us is Michael Faroli, Chief U.S. Economist at J.P. Morgan. Mike, did you hear the interview we just did with Scott? I missed that. Sorry. Okay. Well, so he agreed completely. No, he taught, he basically said the same as you, 75, 50, 25. But I don't think he has that extra 25 in January. The, the little cherry, I guess, rate cherry on top. Why do that? Why, why, why does that matter to the Federal Reserve and inflation when they're looking at all this backward data anyway? Well, I think they're going to need to see convincing evidence that the labor market is slowing. And I'm not sure we're going to see that by the time we get to uh, December. So until we start to see payrolls, you know, sustainably well below 100,000 per month, I don't think the Fed can feel that wage inflation is going to de- decelerate. So I think that's, uh, th- and I think that's pretty much the stopping rule for the Fed is that they need to see really convincing evidence that their inflation forecast, you know, a few few quarters out is moving toward two percent. And to have confidence in that, I think you need to feel that the labor market uh, momentum is really slowing down. Yeah, labor market, perhaps corporate earnings. I mean, is there a ch- it feels like, and to Scott's point earlier, the Fed is almost trying to prove a point, you know, by, by showing the market how, how tough they are. It's like they've never been in a fight. Now they're going after the biggest bully there is. I mean, what's the chance of them getting knocked out? Well, I don't know about the psychology there. I think they have a simple mission, which is to get inflation back under control. And they have one tool to do that effectively, which is interest rates. And they're going to keep using that until they can be... Um, you know, confident that they're on, on the right path there. And so I don't think there's any kind of like macho thing going on. It's just a simple job and they with one tool. And I think they're using it as they need to. Don't they have the other tool, which is reducing money, money supply? So the balance sheet, uh, I don't think is going to be used too actively here. Uh, I think they know how to use interest rates. Uh, has a lot, they have a lot of experience with using interest rates to slow the economy. Uh, and I think that's going to be the tool of first resort. Uh, the balance sheet is on autopilot here, I think, to, to start messing with how they uh, reduce the balance sheet could cause some unwanted disruptions in financial markets that wouldn't necessarily further their goals of uh, slowing ec- economic activity, but just would cause, um, again, you know, kind of diversionary yeah. distortions in markets. The president was on 60 Minutes last night, Mike. I don't know if you, you happen to see it. I'm not bringing politics into it, only forecasting, because he said two things that caught my ear. Number one. So the pandemic was over. I think that caught a lot of people's ears. But number two, he said he thought the economy was not going to get worse from here on out. You know, obviously his job is project an optimistic tone, right? He's the commander in chief. Would you agree the economy is going to stay the same or get better for the next six months? Uh, I don't think so. I think the labor market's going to slow. Um, so the GDP numbers in the first half of the year were obviously very quirky and they were negative. Uh, I'm not sure we're going to see negative GDP numbers going forward, but I would expect the general gist of economic uh, activity to be kind of slowing here, which is the whole point of um, raising interest rates. So you've had a big tightening in financial conditions, a big move up in the dollar, equities not looking so great. And I think that will have, with the delay of a few months, uh, an effect on people's spending. And that should, again, slow the overall pace of, of 
of the economy, whether or not you measure it in GDP or other terms. Yeah, well, we measure it in spending. The consumer certainly has been out there spending. We know that. They've been called, you know, knocked off for a while. They continue to spend. If housing even stays the same or slows down a bit, which is where the trend is looking, it could change. But it's looking that way. If housing slows, what happens to consumer spending? Well, we've already seen housing slow. Uh, Home sales have been down for most of the first half of the year, for several months of the year. Uh, We're only more recently beginning to see house prices go down. Uh, That could have some effect on uh, slowing consumers if they're feeling less house wealthy. Um, But, you know, on the other hand, the consumer does have a, you know, nice little tailwind here from lower energy prices, which, you know, they managed to power through the higher energy prices in the first half of the year. So having that tailwind should keep the consumer, you know, looking relatively okay, even if the overall you know, overall, the economy may be slowing a little bit. Consumers, I think, still will be able to manage to eke out uh, positive spending gains in real terms. All right, Michael Faroli, I know you, you were no sleep for the next two nights for you. You're <laughs> awaiting that Fed meeting, well, which you might have heard about. 2 p.m. Wednesday, we get the call. Mike, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, still ahead. Our stocks headed for a retest of their summer lows. We'll check the charts. One technician who says keep a close eye on the mega cap names. They're going to chart them names you care about and where he sees them going. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this interview. Dow's down two. We're back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, let's talk about the markets here because the screens behind me are not showing a whole lot going on. I mean, we're basically unchanged. The NASDAQ, look at that, it's down one point. Got the Fed meeting on Wednesday. You expect the market to make a big move ahead of the Fed. It's highly unlikely. There are, though, some individual movers at this hour. Let's blast through them. Array Technologies moving high after Piper Sandler upgraded stock to overweight from neutral. Bumped up its target to 28. That implies, to carry the one, more than 28% upside, at least before the call, a little less now with the move today. Wix.com seeing a nice jump. They talked about it in the halftime report. Starboard Value Partners disclosed a 9% stake in Wix. Reuters reporting that the company is not seeking board seats at this time. Airlines, they're outperforming within travel. The big three carriers, along with Alaska and JetBlue, seeing some gains of about 3%. They're all still low over the past week, along with pretty much everything. But the airlines I hire right now, Bitcoin, falling to its lowest level in three months. It is now down more than 7% this month. After falling 15% in August, Ether not doing much better, hitting its lowest level since mid-July. All right, let's step out of the markets and get a CNBC News update with Bertha Coombs. Hi, thanks, Brian. Here's what's happening at this hour. Traffic deaths in the U.S. fell slightly in the second quarter, but still remain high. It was the first quarterly decrease in two years. However, federal officials estimate more than 20,000 people died on American roads in the first six months of 2022. That's a 16-year high. Ukrainian officials say a Russian missile exploded barely 300 yards from the reactors of a nuclear power plant. They're calling 
the attack, quote, nuclear terrorism. The plant is still online and reportedly suffered no damage. And Hurricane Fiona has slammed into the Dominican Republic with winds reaching 90 miles an hour. Roofs have been torn off homes in some towns and flooding has collapsed roadways. In Puerto Rico, the first death from the storm has been reported. Dozens of rescue operations are underway as the island remains largely without power. On the news, team coverage of Queen Elizabeth's funeral and the remarkable spectacle that some four billion people are believed to have watched. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. Brian, back to you. All right. Thank you very much, Bertha. All right. Still ahead here on The Exchange, housing and tech are two areas of the market most impacted by rising rates. Scott Minard is back with his take on each sector next. And throughout Hispanic Heritage Month, we are celebrating some of our CNBC teammates and contributors. Here's the guy that is in my ear right now, AJ Vion. I was born and raised along the border in the Texas Rio Grande Valley, and I'm blessed to come from a loving, working-class Mexican-American family. Growing up as the second of six kids meant there was always someone to lean on when times got tough, no matter how far away we went for college or for work. One of my sisters told me there's beauty in the struggle, and it's not always easy, but our challenges shape us. It's important to remember where you come from, because no matter where you go or who you meet, you represent your people and your culture wherever you go. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Yields continue to rise today with the 10-year yield at the highest level in more than a decade. And, of course, putting more pressure on mortgage rates is keep going up, up, up. And with it, home builder trade and sentiment may be coming down, down, down. Diana Olick is here with the latest on all of that. These moves are just stunning, Diana. Yes, Brian, and I would stick with the up, up, up because the average rate on the 30-year fixed, which loosely follows the 10-year yield, hit 6 0.42% this morning, that according to Mortgage News Daily. That is now well above the last peak we saw briefly in June, which was when the housing market slowdown really began. And by the way, we started this year at 3%. And rates are the primary driver behind another drop in builder sentiment in September, down three points to 46 on the NAHB index. Anything below 50 is negative, and that is the ninth straight month of declines and the lowest level since 2014, with the exception of a very brief drop and then rebound at the start of the pandemic. Sentiment was at 83 just this past January. Now, of the index's three components, current sales conditions dropped three points to 54, sales expectations in the next six months fell one point to 46, and buyer traffic really down one point to 31. Now, nearly one quarter of all builders reported lowering prices in September and more than half reported using incentives to bolster sales, including mortgage rate buy downs, free amenities, as well as those price reductions we talked about. Now, despite all this, KeyBank upgraded three builders this morning to outperform Dar Horton, Lennar and Pulte, citing an early pain, early gain strategy as these names are all underperforming the S&P. Brian. <clears throat> all right, Diana, we got Guggenheim Scott Minard back with us on set. I want to get your reaction to all of that in a second. Before I do, though, I do have a follow-up for Diana because uh, Open Door, the home flipping service, that stock's getting crushed. I saw a story in Open Door today, which was unbelievable. Yeah, Brian, that's on the heels of a report from a research company called Yipit Data that tracked the sales of Open Door homes. And what it found was that profitability in August 
reached a record low because over 40 percent of its homes sold at a loss. Now, I called Open Door, of course, and they had no comment on this, but they did point to the last shareholder letter where they did kind of guide to this, saying that we made the strategic decision to close on those homes and not reprice or cancel contracts in this quarter, obviously knowing that home prices are softening and we're seeing just incredible volatility in the market with this quick turnaround in home values. Diane Olick, thank you very much. Uh, Scott Miner with us. How important is the housing market oh, to the economy? Very important. I mean, there are two, two things about housing that are critical. One is the, the activity in housing has a disproportionate uh, effect on GDP. That is that if you have housing come down dramatically, then it's really easy to shave one or two points off GDP. The second is, is that unlike equities, where people look at em- equity uh, price increases as being transitory, and that, that uh, you know, it's not something you can bank on. Like uh, inflation. Yeah. Well, transitory. Exactly. That, you know, they, they tend not to spend the wealth effect, meaning they spend about 2% of the appreciation in equities. So if they make a bunch of money in stocks, they spend about 2% about of that. Two, that's right. But okay. in homes, then those, uh, those gains are seen as more permanent. And so typically, uh, people will spend about 10% of their home appreciation wow. in, in consumption. So that's really interesting. So if the home goes up $100,000, they may spend ten grand on whatever it is, home improvements, which hopefully then will increase the value of the home. If the stock portfolio goes up hundred grand, they are going to spend $2,000 on like a short weekend trip or something. I mean, exactly. Going to Vegas. Yeah. yeah. So they can either get zero or, or add another couple thousand. That is so key. And I was in the commercial break, I was doing just on like mortgage calculators, just calculating what an average price, these rate rises. Well, they're massive. When you look at the actual numbers, if somebody's got an arm or if somebody's got, uh, they want to purchase a new home, these are, these are show-stopping numbers. Yeah. And I don't mean show-stopping in a good way. Well, and you know, Brian, one of the things people didn't seem to understand when right, housing prices were going up, it's not the price of the house that so much is driving the purchase decision. It's the monthly payment. Yeah. So, you know, Is there any chance of a, not 2007, okay, which you and I talked about a lot beforehand and I was screaming about it. Is there a chance of any kind of a credit event with housing that we are not thinking about? Or is it, I hate to say, is it different this time? Yeah, well, look, it, 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 I don't see housing being um, the linchpin in a, in a major credit event. I think that there are places in the market where investors should be more careful. Such as? Uh, like uh, commercial mortgage-backed securities, CMBS. Um, you know, I see just, a bunch of empty buildings in, in L.A., San Francisco, and New York and Chicago, Scott. Yes. In resi- well, and I wonder what the hell's going to happen to those, hell <laughs> those bonds. Uh, the mortgage loans. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of buildings are going to get turned over to the lenders. So, you know, it's interesting, Brian, when you look at the real estate cycle, which is pretty predictable. If you go back to 1990, the real estate crisis came in commercial. When you go to 2007, the real estate crisis came in residential. The big real estate problem in this cycle is we're going back to commercial. We're not going to relive. But that's a much smaller macro impact. It's bad for the firms, but for the economy, 
smaller. Remember the 1990 yep. recession. That was when they had to uh, establish the Resolution Trust Corporation. They had to bail out the savings and loans in banks. Which I was told is, was not a big deal. Anyway, we'll move on. Well, that was because you didn't live through it. <laughs> yeah, no, I was being facetious when I... Anywho, let's move on to another sector getting hit by rising rates. That is technology with yields higher across the curve. Twos, tens, thirties, whatever. Enterprise and cloud stocks are under pressure because why? They have high valuations. Valuations come down, Frank Holland. And some of these names are getting pretty big impacts. Yeah, absolutely, Brian. Uh, Cloud stocks mostly underperforming the S&P today on that growing rate pressure ahead of the Fed meeting coming up later this week. Now, Cowan expects these cloud and enterprise names to trade based on the moves of the 10-year with a negative correlation, at least in the near term. Uh, Earlier in the month, Cloud was able to rise with the rate hikes, but hotter than expected CPI, heightened concerns that a 100-point hike could be coming High valuation, high growth names like GitLab, that's a DevOps software maker down more than 5%, Bill.com in the payment space, and Viva in the healthcare space, some of the hardest hit names really showing how broad all this rate pressure really is. Cloud names off their lows now, but performance today through the closing bell with the 10-year hitting an 11-year high will be watched very closely. Tomorrow, Salesforce launches Dreamforce out there in the Bay. Ray J calling the stock and the annual conference a real inflection point. Generally, CRM is seen as a read for current cloud and IT spending in the environment overall. Analysts and investors will be listening closely for the potential impact of the stronger dollar. It's up more than a percent just over the last week. Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff flagged it as a major headwind in recent quarters, along with other tech names. Brian, back over to you. All right, Frank, thank you very much. You know, everybody thinks of you, Scott, as a bond guy. You, you can do anything you want. You're global chief investment officer. Right. You know, some of these stocks, do you, do you feel like they're getting attractive at any level, these technology stocks? Um, it, it's like catching a falling knife right now. I think there's some stuff out there that's very interesting. I don't think we've reached prices that, that make sense as an entry point. What's, what's interesting? Well, you know, some of the, the, the stuff that was done that, that were unicorns, you know, it, it's really interesting. Going, I, it, This looks a lot like the Internet bubble. And when you look at what does this current this current correction we're coming out of on the NASDAQ. And we have a lot more ground to cover to the downside. But you remember, I'll never forget, Brian, saying to people, you know, a lot of these internet companies are going away. Most of them are going away. But, you know, can you tell me, is Amazon or Pets.com going to be the winner? Now, I bought Amazon stock at $9 a share in the internet crash. I was a genius. I sold it at 14 Right. Good job. Yes. You made 50%, Scott. It's awesome, right? Nice. And so, you know, it, it, but you, it's really hard to sort through the winners and losers right now. But there are a lot of companies out there that were despacked, companies that are really good. I don't, don't, I know too much, so I don't want to mention any names. Oh, but, feel free. Uh, we don't care. But there are, yeah, <laughs> the SEC <laughs> does. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm keeping a close eye on some of those. I think that there are some interesting things there. You know, I've talked about PayPal before. Uh, I've talked about uh, Micron Technology. I think those are those are interesting companies to take a look at. And the know, DRAM market's not going away. It's a, exactly. But PayPal stock is traded like it's going away. Yeah, but uh, I don't. You, think, you either believe it is or not. I right. Mean, well, I mean, look, a lot of the a lot of the discussion around PayPal uh, centered on cryptocurrency and the fact that you could transact for zero. And well, I don't think that's happening next week. So, you know, so I think that a lot of these companies are well established and will continue to make profits. And honestly, one I'm looking at, not buying yet, FedEx. Really? Yeah. With a trailing, looking at it, not buying it. 
Right, because, look, I think FedEx can still come down quite a bit. But a company like this that has a, a trailing PE of, of under nine, uh, which is well-established, I, I don't think FedEx's critical involvement in the economy is anywhere near over. FedEx, we're watching Micron, watching PayPal as well. See, you're not just the biggest bear. You're, just, there's, you're select. Well. All right, we've got a lot more to do with Scott Miner, but still ahead. The S&B trading is about 2% above its June low right now. But your next guest, not Scott, says the index could retest or even break that low ahead. He will make the technical case. That is next. All right, welcome back. Another choppy trading day for the overall averages. Investors, of course, they're waiting for the Federal Reserve Wednesday, the FOMC decision. Why wouldn't you wait? But the S&P 500 didn't wait last week. It's coming off its worst week since June and just about 2% above the recent low. But your next guest checked the charts and says we could retest that level soon or maybe even head lower. Let's welcome in Ari Wald, Managing Director and Head of Technology Analysis at Oppenheimer. The bears are growling this show, Ari, and I want our viewers and listeners to know. I mean, don't at me on this. The Scots been negative, and you, you, you seem like you're backing that view up with the technicals, and I want to make clear, we did not plan this, not like some piling on here. Right. Yeah, no, we, we, we didn't plan, plan this. And I, I think it's also important to distinguish time horizon here. Uh, we probably side a little bit more positively longer term, uh, being of the view that this is a final leg lower of this bear cycle. Uh, I think we're getting close, but not there yet. So the I think the, the incremental change in, in recent weeks is just the rollover in these mega cap uh, tech stocks that dominate the cap weighted indexes. Uh, we we have been up. We were previously up the higher low camp. We thought the S and P would come down into thirty eight hundred. Uh, that was a, a key level for us. Uh, and now with the rollover in, in mega caps, I think there is the possibility for a less intense uh, test of the prior low or even a, a lower low. Uh, the key point being is that the weakness in the mega caps is masking some internal improvement that we're seeing underneath the surface. Uh, and again making the case that this could be the final leg lower mm. and, and a, setting up a turn in the cycle in the fourth quarter when seasonals do improve. Well, I, I think Scott actually did say, and I don't want to quote him, but he's sitting right here, that, that he, you, you were a little more optimistic in December, right? I mean, you thought in December we could see a turn higher for equities. You're negative yeah. between now and then. Yeah, I think that, you know, somewhere in here, October, the, when I put a date on it, is, you know, the market will flush out and that'll be a buying opportunity. So does that sound, already like it matches up with the technicals that you are seeing? That follows the the seasonal roadmap as well. You know, seasonals for us is secondary confirmation. We're not going to use them in isolation. But when our other indicators are confirming that, it it does make for a compelling argument. For instance, breadth was in, uh, deteriorating coming into the year, into what was the worst stretch of what the four year presidential cycle, uh, the the first half of the midterm year. That typically improves significantly um, in the fourth quarter. Midterm yeah. years typically bottom in mid October. And again, with that improvement that we're seeing underneath the surface with the New York Stock Exchange advanced decline line in August, coming off its highest level since January, so far holding its two Q yeah. lows, I think as long as that is still the case, uh, you do have that set up for a, a strong run in the year end. I, I was going to save this for an RBI, this thing I do in the mornings, Ari, but uh, I'll do it now because I'm going to be off on Friday. Next week is historically the worst week of the year for the stock market. Next week. I mean, do you think there could be some kind of big flush coming? 
There could be. There could be. Uh, you know, the day to day, the week to week is is always tricky. And uh, when you have a poor trend and not being, you know, the, the base build, you know, building a base is difficult. And I guess this is not the time of year to expect yeah. that upturn just yet. So history would suggest, yeah, that volatility could linger here. I, I think it's important to understand your t- understand your time horizon that I guess I'm making the case that it could snap back pretty quickly uh, a few weeks post that. All right, Wall, Oppenheimer on the tape. Could be weak going into year in, but then maybe a turn, a little optimism there. All right, thank you very much. All right, still ahead. Earlier in the show, if you missed it, Scott teased when I was teasing him about being the world's biggest bear that there's an opportunity of a generation out there. We have no idea what that is. We're going to learn at the same time you do after this. All right, welcome back. Just because the market has been volatile doesn't mean there aren't opportunities for investors because you want to buy low, right? I mean, that's the idea. Let's bring back Scott Minard. Scott, earlier in the show, you said you thought there was a generational opportunity here. Right. What is it? What are you talking about? Well, you remember back when um, Drexel failed? Yeah, I was was five. I'm not that old. Well, there were a lot of great companies that had been financed by Drexel that had their debt outstanding that, you know, had to be basically cleaned up. And, you know, that's where Executive Life and Apollo got their start, right? We have a very similar situation right now, and that is there are a lot of companies out there that I mentioned earlier, some are unicorns, that within the next year, two years, three years, they have debt they issued at ridiculously low levels. They should have never been able to issue at 6% or whatever. Their debt now is trading at like 13, 14, right? These are companies that are either going to end up in one of two places, Brian. Either they're going to get their bonds taken out and paid off, so you can buy a 6% bond that's trading at a dollar price of like 80, and it's going to get paid off, or they're going to hand you the keys, and you're going to own the company. I assume you're looking for more of the former than the latter, unless you want to run some of these companies. Uh, well, no, I mean, there's management there. They just need to be recapitalized. So, so where's the opportunity then? Well, the fact is that you're going to buy the bond. Your downside risk is you're going to earn 13 or 14% on it. And your upside risk is that you're going to end up in, Owning a, in the an company. equity position in a company that you like. Because the problem for a lot of these people is not the company itself or the business they're in. The problem is that the capital structure they put together assumed that we were going to keep being able to get money for nothing and keep these things alive. And so, you know, you could be, for the right person today, they could be the next Apollo. And that is an awesome option. I don't suppose you can name one of these companies <clears throat> or give us an idea. Since I'm looking at a lot of them myself, I would say no. But you are looking to invest in some of these companies. They're good companies. Great companies. Just got stupid on the debt. Yeah. Their capital structures don't make any sense at all. I mean, companies, and I mentioned SPACs. How many of these are there out there? Oh, I would say there's, you know, at least uh, 30 to 50. We had Thomas Tullin here last week, friend of yours, right. part owner of the Steelers, billionaire, legendary entertainment, Dune producer, all-around great guy, by the way. Grew up, to, grew up with a single mom in a trailer in Elmira, New York. I mean, hell of a story. He was saying he's looking at some of the opportunities like that. It's like, it's like now's the time to, to have kind of almost a private equity war chest. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's really interesting because traditional private equity is probably one of the worst investments you can make right now. Right now? Right now. 
the well, deal buying, volume is terrible. Buy, buying the debt is much more interesting. You know, a lot of these companies out there, and I don't want to name them, we all know who they are, we're going to see their stocks down 50% by next year. And it's because they're going to have to mark to market a lot of these companies that they're already invested in. So you can't give us the names, but we got, and I, I, we got like 40 seconds, and I've got to bail to ho- go host Power Lunch. Look for companies that have huge debt levels, where they have technology to do, where for they the most need part, to be refinancing mostly most technology, technology, high debt levels, right? That are with maturing bonds, right? Within the next five years, and these are fundamentally good companies that have positive cash flow. If you can get rid of the, what debt. does that mean for the equities of these? Because most of our viewers are not going to go out and buy the high yield debt of some company they find. The equities going to zero. The bondholders are going to own the company. Wow. Uh, it's too early for a beer. I mean, I feel like after this. <laughs> if you're serving, I'm. Oh, no, I can't, I'm, not, I'm not doing it. I'm, I'm, I'm driving to Philly for the Eagles game tonight. But uh, yeah, no. Uh, wow. Scott, it's, it's a real pleasure to have you on. Uh, wide range. I could do it like three or four hours. We should do it like, like a three hour thing together at some point. Well, if, Why not? CNB, if CNBC will allow it, I'll do it. Not right now, but maybe we can. <laughs> Thanks for being in studio, Scott Minard. I got to say Thank my you, goodbyes. Bro. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Safe travels. All right. Thank you. And go Dodgers. Coming up, what do you get when you combine high interest rates, record high auto prices, and lower consumer confidence? What else? You get weaker forecasts for auto sales. Fellow will join us on how much weaker. Next. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Automobiles, of course, were in very high demand during and post-pandemic. But it looks like that may finally be changing. Phil Bo has more with that. Phil. Brian, we've been talking about demand erosion and when we would start to see it for some time. Well, now LMC Automotive and there are others in the auto industry who are saying, yeah, it's starting to creep in on the lower end of the market. In fact, LMC Automotive has now cut its full year sales forecast for the United States. It was at 14.1 million vehicles. They have cut that down to 13.8 million in part because there is that demand erosion at the bottom of the market. Make no mistake. LMC and others still see way more demand than supply. But if you look at that lower end of the market, look at the, what you're, you're running into in terms of pricing. Average transaction price at a record high, more than $48,000. Average monthly payment now top $700. And what are the auditors throwing at you if you go in to get a deal? Not a lot. An average of $894 per vehicle. By the way, that's down more than 50% compared to a year ago. And that's why when you look at auto sales right now, they're going to come in at about $13.7 million because the supply is limited. But as you look over the next year or so, the thing to focus on is what do we see in terms of demand and how it holds up, Brian, as you take a look at the automakers. Keep in mind that they only have 28 days supply right now. That is well below normal averages, but it is starting to build just a little bit. Not to the point where we can say that they've got plenty of supply, but it is starting to build just a little bit. Brian? Maybe a little good news for buyers down the road. Phil LeBeau, thank you very much. All right, that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.